Heavenly Father, we thank you. And uh, I pray that uh, as we uh, continue in our worship this morning, Spirit, that you would that you would be our comforter, that you would be our all in all. And um, Father, only you know the trials, the tribulations, the sufferings, the difficulties, the joys, the things that we face as we traverse this world. And so I pray that in this place this morning, your spirit would reign, that it would minister to our hearts and speak truth to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I want to invite you to uh, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you probably do and you don't know it on your smartphone or your tablet. Find us in the YouVersion app. If you're new, uh, you can download that. Uh, and also, we do our sermon outlines and, and some key links and things like that in the events tab of your Bible, so uh, on the Bible app. So I encourage you to find that. While you're doing that, uh, I kind of want to talk about where we are in the grand scheme of things, give us a clue of where we're headed. It's one of those seasons, like spring is almost here, right? Yeah, woo. I wore a t-shirt today, it's happening, like we're going to make it come. And um, I want to I give us a little bit of a direction. So we're working through the book of Romans um, uh, as a church this year, and over the next few weeks we're going to continue to do some of that, but um, next week is Love Shelbyville Day. If you've not been a part of one of those, man, I cannot wait. Like, just make plans to be here next week, please. Um, although I won't be. We're going on vacation. Um, so, uh, but do that. It's a, it's a great time. We come, we'll come, and, and we'll go serve, and we'll go be the church out in our community. It's a great thing. The following week, uh, you guys are going to get to hear from a guy named Caleb King, who is leading our efforts uh, in Henry County uh, to reach out and to, uh, and to prayerfully and hopefully see a new church planted there. Uh, so you're going to get to hear from him. And then the week after that, we're going to start a new series called Dead Man Walking. And um, man, we talked a lot about sin and being set apart and holiness in this first part of 2019. That's really good. And then we're going to get to, man, really think about the impact that the resurrection has on us. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to follow that through Easter in April and May, a series called Dead Man Walking. Today, though, we're going to finish up this series uh, that we've been uh, in in the month of March entitled Not Fair. And if you've been with us, this is going to sound a little redundant. If you haven't, let me catch you up really quickly, okay? Here's, here's the big idea. The big idea is that there are a ton of things in our lives, uh, things that are unique to our lives that aren't fair, that don't seem fair. And um, we've used the analogy or the illustration of these bottles that many times we, we think we take those things, we write them down on a piece of paper, we throw them in these bottles, we bottle them up, and we write on the outside of that bottle, God, you owe me. And we've been trying to, to as we go through this idea of the fact that, like, the truth that we are sinners, and that sin has a consequence, and, and so now there are going to be some things that don't seem fair. How do we deal with that? How do we work through that with the God who is fair? And so um, let me say this, because here's the temptation, I think, when we begin to talk about things that don't seem fair. We don't at all want to mitigate the difficulties of life. We don't want to make them seem small or that you should just move on or move forward. We talk about these things like you should feel better tomorrow, <laughs> 
that's what we do. We just we we because that's the way we want it to happen, right? We read biblical accounts that happened over months and years, and we think that man, this is just going to happen in a minute. It didn't seem fair, but oh, praise God, now it does. And and while God can do that because His truth is powerful and effective, it can also take time to apply those truths in our lives. We are all works in progress here at Christ Community, myself included. So, um, so together, right, we will have great faith in God and let Him uh, stretch us. And uh, that would be my hope for you, is that you'd let Him stretch you as far as you can be stretched. So, what have we discovered in this series? Ultimately, uh, we are discovering that when we feel like things aren't fair, it's a season where God is increasing our faith in a fair God. And that increased faith uh, almost always leads to some forgiveness on our part. We need to find a way to forgive. And that as we're doing that, God is peeling back our hearts. Uh, and, and because he's doing that, because he's seeing all the way through us, we can stop putting on the act. And we can be transparent before Jesus and before others. Um, so these not fair moments in life, as we kind of bring this all to a close, today we're going to wrestle with this idea that these not fair moments in our life, they're either going to consume us or they're going to catapult us into a relationship with Jesus that we've never known before. They're going to consume us or they're going to catapult us. And we're going to, to see how that happens and be challenged to think about if we can do that in our lives. So, that's enough pre-sermon. That doesn't count my time. Just... <laughs> Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Father, we pray. We, we thank you for your word that speaks truth to us, and we pray that this morning we would hear from it about a man named Jesus, that his truth would pierce our hearts and call us back to him. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So there's a lot in that passage, all right? So um, first, I want us to, to come around this idea of, of how sin coaxes us into shouting, not fair, 
how sin coaxes us into this idea of, of shouting, not fair. And there's, there's several different, actually there's three different types of responses to, to sin, to things that don't seem fair, that end up creating these unhealthy cycles in our life. And so the first one that we want to think about is the idea of, of shame. Shame. Shame says, I'm bad. When we are ashamed, uh, internally the narrative in our head is that I'm bad. I'm a bad person. Verses 7 and 8, we see this kind of fleshed out, right? Uh, Paul is, is trying to help them understand how these not fair moments have come along. And he says, But if by my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what evil so that good may come. You see, when we feel shame, maybe you've been here, when we feel shame, we just begin to say, well, I'm bad. There is no hope. Why try? <laughs> right? And so we just begin to give in to this lie that we are bad. That we are bad. So when someone is, is stuck in a cycle of shame, they're not fair moments um, they, they are wrapped into uh, things like depression because they believe over and over and over again that they're bad. They're wrapped into things like apathy. Why should I even try? Like, I, I, I tried that church thing. I tried the Jesus stuff. I tried all that. But none of it really seems to work. And so, who cares? And if, if, if me being bad actually brings out the goodness of God, then what's it matter anyway? Shame is fleshed out in things like addiction. I'm bad, and I know I'm bad, and so I just want to stop the pain of feeling like I'm bad, and so I'm going to just give myself to whatever the, the thing is. And that's not just drugs or alcohol. We can be addicted to many other things. And ultimately, this idea of shame tends to lead to, to a victim mentality, right? I'm bad, and I'm bad because of something else, right? Some, uh, someone else. So shame is this thing that tends to, to pile on. And, and Paul, he starts with this argument, right? He says, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Like, well, it doesn't matter what I do anyway. And he's like, man, your condemnation is deserved. Don't get stuck in this. When shame is, is where we are, we end up saying things aren't fair because of everything we've had to go through. I'm bad. I know I'm bad, but I've had to go through so much and it's just not fair. I'd never stood a chance. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're not shame, but maybe you're guilt. Where shame says, I'm bad, guilt says, I've done bad things. See the difference? Shame says, I'm bad, guilt says, I've done bad things. And so this one can be a little trickier to, to see. We, we see in verses 9 through 11, right, the realization of this. Uh, Paul writes, What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it's written, no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, there's no one who seeks God. So when we experience guilt, it's this idea that, okay, I can get around the idea that all of us are sinners. We've all messed up. I've done bad things. But then what happens when we feel guilty? We try to do good things to work off the bad things. People who struggle with guilt are usually really good at putting up a false front. Everything about their life looks really good, 
because they've worked really hard to do good things to cancel out the bad things that they know they've done. Shame says I'm bad. Guilt says I've done bad things. And when guilt is our hang-up, we end up saying things aren't fair because we've worked too hard to deserve this. Right? I've been trying my best to do this, so it's just not fair that something bad would happen because I've done all of these good things to try and cancel out the bad things I know I've done. Shame says I'm bad. Guilt says I've done bad things. But then blame says they have done bad things. We see this in verses 13 through 17. Paul continues to quote Old Testament Scripture, and he says, Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. Right? When guilt and shame aren't enough, we, we move to blame, and we begin to hurt others, as we see here in verses 13 through 17. 17. And we end up saying things aren't fair, because if they were, God wouldn't have allowed this to happen. And so I'm taking justice into my own hands. They've done bad things, and so I don't want people to talk about my bad things, and so I'm going to blame others and inflict pain on others to cover up the things that I've done. I'll fight for justice if no one else is going to. Shame says I'm bad. Guilt says I've done bad things. And blame says they've done bad things. So I ask you this question this morning. Can you find your story in one of these? Can you find your story in one of these? Have you been consumed by the shame of your sin, spiraling down and down and down, becoming the victim? Have you worked your entire life to pay off your guilty charge? Are you stuck in a pattern of blaming others to avoid taking a deeper look at yourself? Can you find your story in one of these shame, guilt, and blame? Verse 18 clues us into the root of all of these feelings and emotions. It says there's no fear of God before their eyes. You see, the root of each of these emotions, shame, guilt, and blame, is the fact that we just don't fear the God who created us, the God who made us. The God who, as my dad would say, brought us into this world and can take us out. And with each of these, if we allow shame and guilt and blame to cause us to cry out, not fair, the more that we scream, not fair to God, the less that we end up fearing God. And when we don't fear God, we settle for sin. Right? All of a sudden, it's okay. Everyone does this. It's just not worth it. And what happens, I think, at least what's happened in my life and I think in in the life of many, is that for most of humanity, the goal becomes to get to guilt. Like, for whatever reason, it seems that it's really honorable to get to a place where you're working really hard to pay off your sin. Like, that's the honorable thing to do, to be a good person who's doing good things. Work hard and do good things to make up for their sin. But I don't read that anywhere in Scripture, and I don't see that in the God that we love and the God who loves us. You see, because there's still a problem with this idea of guilt. I've met a ton of really great people who have decided to live morally upright lives. Let's pretend that one of those 
people is my friend Joe here. Joe is a great friend of mine. He gets used in lots of illustrations. Let's pretend that Joe decided at the age of 25 that he wasn't going to sin anymore. He'd, he'd had a terrible life, maybe done some really, really bad things. I don't know. Whatever, but insert sin here. For 25 years. But at the age of 25, he just decided, that's it. I'm living a good and sinless life. And let's say that this is some alternate reality and he could actually do that. Okay? Never sinned from age 25. And let's say he lived another 50 years. Died at the age of 75. 25 years of sinful living is surely canceled out by 50 years of good works. Right? I mean, in 50 years, imagine if you never sinned, imagine all the good things that you could do. Give to all the charities, run for president, change the nation. I don't know. 50 years of good works. Surely that would cover up these 25 years of bad living. You see the problem? Even if you and I could start today and never sin again, we don't have the ability to right the wrongs that we've already committed. We don't have the ability. Nothing could change the first 25 years of Joe's life. This is what Paul means in verse 20 when he says, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. And so the question becomes, well, how are we going to be justified then? How will things be made right? How will the first 25 years of Joe's existence be changed and transformed in the sight of God? How does that happen? The picture of how this happens is an incredible testimony to Christ, but it's also a transforming way that we begin to think about our world and the things that don't seem fair. I want you to hold your finger in Romans 20 and flip over to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 6. I want you to keep in mind that at this point, Jesus has not come to earth. Isaiah is a prophet speaking for God. And he writes this. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. Shame, guilt, blame. And the Lord has punished him, or who, who is him, for the iniquity of us all. He writes of the Christ who is to come. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish... He will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Oh, who is this guy who can justify many? He will carry their iniquities. 
And therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. That's my God. That's Jesus Christ. Who willingly justified us was silent in a moment where he had every right to scream, not fair. Not fair. We read about this in uh, John. In the book of John, chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, the scene is set as such. Jesus has been falsely accused, wrongly accused. He's not done anything wrong. And he begins to come before the government. They're trying to put him on trial. Even the trial is incredibly corrupt. And he's in front of Pilate. And Pilate is, is honestly looking for a way to let him off the hook. And in verse 9 of chapter 19, it says, Pilate went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You see, what we have to understand today is that Jesus saved us with his silence. He saved us with his silence. Instead of speaking up for what was right by him, he humbled himself for your sake. Instead of crying out to God, this isn't fair, he silently stepped into your place. He suffered in silence. Hebrews 13.13. 13. It's a very popular verse around here at Christ Community. It gives us our vision to be going outside. It says, let us then go to him, Christ, outside the camp. Then what's it say? Bearing his disgrace. Bearing his disgrace. You see, Jesus saved you with his silence. In a moment that was completely unfair to him, Instead of crying out, not fair, he sat in silence as he took the punishment and the blame. And you and I get to join Jesus when we face things that are unfair. When we face things that we can't seem to explain, when things are happening in our life that, man, they hurt and they're terrible and they're awful, we get to join Jesus in bearing the reproach. We are never more aligned with Christ than when we get to face difficult and seemingly unfair situations. In those moments, there is an intimate connection and relationship with him that we can have in no other way. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-6 through 6 gives us great hope in this. It reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patience, patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. Now, the hope, right? The hope is not life will never be tough. It's quite the opposite. We read in the Gospels that, that Jesus literally sweat drops of blood as he wrestled with the suffering that he was about to face. 
You see, this moment of silence before Pilate wasn't just something that he was able to do because he was God. He was God, but he was also 100% man. And so as he prepared for that moment where he would stand silent before Pilate, he first had to be silent before God. In those moments leading up to that, he got away from the noise. He got away from those who would commiserate with him, and he sat silently before God. And you and I, in all those moments where we want to cry out, this isn't fair, we must do the same. We must be silent before God. Look back at Romans chapter 3, verses 19. I want us to think about this moment. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. Can you imagine with me for just a moment, can you picture with me in your mind this intimate moment where you are in the sight of God? The two of you together. A life that oftentimes is lived without fear of God, is suddenly transformed as you're sitting before Him and you realize the power and the majesty that He has. I think the only thing that we will know to do when we are in the presence of God directly is to to be silent. You only know to be silent. And that silence before God communicates that you know you're bad, but you trust that He's created you for good. Silence before God, it communicates that you've done something bad, but you know that Christ has paid the price for you. Silence before God communicates that you want to follow Him into the fight for what's fair instead of leading the charge yourself. You know that He has a plan. To be silent before the Lord. How do we do that? What does that look like? Practically, how does this happen? The first thing that we have to do is we have to accept God's grace. We have to accept God's grace. And you're like, Blake, you don't understand. I've done a lot of bad things. Okay, good. Me too. But Blake, you don't understand. A lot of bad things have been done to me. Join, join the team. Blake, you don't understand. I still struggle with doing bad things. Uh-huh. Of course. But to accept God's grace, to to repent, to turn from our sin, right? It's not just that we're turning away from our sin. Too often, right, that's the message that we hear. We just, our goal is guilt, right? Like, okay, I I understand that I sin, and I'm just going to turn, and I'm going to start doing good things. That is not the message of the gospel. It doesn't right all of our previous wrongs when we just turn from our sin and do what we think is good. When we repent, we turn from our sin, but we also turn to the grace of God. We accept His grace that not only changes who we are, but forgives who we've been. That's the difference. You see, Christianity is not an exercise in moral living. It's a belief that Jesus Christ has redeemed you. He's bought you back so that He could make your life new again. He has created you. Sin stole you, and He has paid in full to buy, your, to buy back your life. And so I ask, right, in light of that, have you accepted and turned to God's grace as your only hope? 
Not have you turned from your sin and tried to live a better life. Not have you turned from your sin and tried to do good things to make up for it all. Have you turned from your sin and accepted the grace that Jesus Christ offered us by being silent before Pilate? Accept God's grace. If you've done that, another way to be silent before the Lord is to be personally accountable. I want you to go back to that scene, that moment where you're sitting with the Lord, that intimate room. I want you to imagine sitting there face to face with God and imagine trying to make excuses for why you've lived your life the way you have. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? You know that face you've seen on your kids when you're trying to get them to tell you what they've really done? Squirming, no eye contact. Can you imagine sitting in the room face to face with God and trying to come up with excuses for all the ways that you've tried to live and tried to do the right things? Can you imagine blaming others for your life? Yeah, but God, you don't understand. Joe was my friend those first 25 years of his life. It just seemed like the right thing to do. I was, I was loving on Joe. You see, as believers in Jesus, we must learn to battle back against the victim mindset that so often takes us captive. We have to be personally accountable in those moments. We have to be personally accountable before God. So um, I gave Alan with him uh, a, a fair warning. Um, in these next two application points, he has given to me uh, two books that I would say changed my thinking on both of these ideas. And um, one of them is, is great. Uh, it's a book called The Question Behind the Question. I would recommend it for anyone, Practicing Personal Accountability at Work and in Life by a guy named John Miller. And uh, it's incredibly challenging because guess what? At the end of it, you have no excuses. It's crazy. Um, and so I wanted to, to just share a little bit of the idea behind the question behind the question. Miller believes in changing the questions we ask ourselves from negative questions like, why do we have to go through all this change? Or who dropped the ball? To more solution-based I questions. Well, what can I do to contribute? Or how can I help solve the problem? Each of us may be aware that the only person each of us can change is ourself. However, there's a big difference between understanding this concept and actually living it, right? So he raises the question in the book, why does it seem the only thing people know how to do anymore is point the finger elsewhere? Blame is everywhere. Here's some examples he gave. See if this fleshes out in your life. I wanted to buy coffee at a gas station store. The pot was empty. I told the person behind the counter the coffee pot was empty, and then he pointed to a coworker and said, coffee is their department. While picking up takeout pizza, the pizza place lost our order, and suddenly out of the blue, the man behind the counter says, hey, don't blame me. My shift just started. Right? Miller says he'll ask groups as he's doing training on this, what's the one thing that you would change to improve the effectiveness of your organization? And he said, I typically receive this list, the product, the policies, the procedures, the promotions, a certain person, and no one ever says, me. Our minds, says Miller, don't, they just don't go there. Our thoughts are almost always focused externally first. And so we often hear things like, it's not my fault, it's not my job, it's not my problem. And instead, we should be asking ourselves, how can I do my job better? What can I do to improve this situation? Or how can I support others? And so this book encourages us to move away from victim-like questions, such as why don't others work harder, or why don't I get more direction from upper management, or why is this happening to me, 
to questions that begin with what or how and contain I to bring the focus back to one's self. You see, when you practice personal accountability before God and before others, you'll make better choices in the moment when you start asking yourself better questions. But also what's amazing is that when you begin to do this, when you're personally accountable, it doesn't just make you healthier, it challenges those around you to be more accountable as well. You see, when people start blaming one another, it just spirals out of control. But if we will be personally accountable, we not only change our lives, but we begin to see the lives of those around us change and become more accountable themselves. And so when we read in Romans 3.19, every mouth may be shut and the whole world will become subject to God's judgment. And we put ourselves in that spot. We realize that when we are in front of God, we must be personally accountable. But the good news of the gospel is that while we do that, and when we are able to have humility before God, he says, guess what? The good news is, is for all those things that you screwed up, Jesus paid the price for the rest of that. To sit silently before the Lord is to accept his grace. It's to be personally accountable. And it's also to seek the solitude that lets the Lord speak. We don't ever get to that place of humility. We don't ever get to that place of of really being before the Lord until we'll just be quiet. What does that look like in a a world and and in our lives that are so busy? You always are pulling out your phone. Like, how, how does that actually happen? We crave it, right? We crave downtime. We crave something away from the world. But to seek solitude isn't merely a detachment from the world. That's Eastern meditation. Solitude before the Lord is an attachment to God. That's Christian solitude, removing ourselves from the world to be attached to the Lord. Another book that I would recommend, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. And he has a whole book on this idea of solitude. And three really quick uh, examples of what this might look like. He talks about minute retreats. Minute retreats. Uh, like one of the habits that, that so many people, including myself, now have is whenever you have a moment of downtime, maybe you're sitting at a stoplight, maybe you've just gotten someplace and you've got a couple minutes till things start, what do you reach for? Your phone, right? He says, man, if we can begin to instead seek the Lord in those moments through just a, a minute retreat of solitude, I'm going to remove myself from the, the world, maybe even turn the radio off in my car, and to, to willfully give my mind to the Lord in that moment, to, to, to seek solitude that lets the Lord speak to me. Obviously, as Christians, he says we should have a goal for daily solitude, where we can get, steal away and, and have time with him, uh, just the two of us. But there's also the need for longer times. And, and so one really practical idea that he gives that I love is, man, if you're married and you have children, like the idea of solitude is about as foreign as I don't know what. Right? It's a long way off. And so he says, man, maybe you and your spouse can have a conversation to where um, one day of the week, uh, it, morning duties are the husband's. And we know we're doing that so that the wife can have a, a little bit longer period of solitude where she's seeking the Lord. And then we're switching another day of the week where that happens, right? Uh, something along those lines. Maybe it's you and a, another friend who you're trading long mornings off week to week. Whatever it looks like. Find ways to seek solitude that lets the Lord speak into your life. 
Whatever it is, you have to find a way to be silent, to be silent before the Lord. It's how Christ saved us. And it's how we can begin to see our lives transformed and our relationship with Christ catapulted into a new level when we face these not fair moments. You may hear all this and you're thinking, I thought this was the go outside church. We just go and we, we do things, we serve, we make action. And now we're talking about just sitting quietly before the Lord. This is not the church that I signed up for. Why am I here? close with this story. Many of you are familiar, uh, even if you've never been to church before, you're probably familiar with the idea of Moses and parting the Red Sea. The Israelite people have been enslaved in Egypt hundreds of years. Terrible, oppressive slavery. Many injustices. Completely unfair. The Lord released them, and they're running out into the desert. And it seems as though they're going to be stuck by the Red Sea. That right there on the banks of the Red Sea, the Egyptians are just going to slaughter them. The world is over. And guess what the Israelite people begin to do? This isn't fair. If they were going to kill us, Moses, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? We wouldn't have had to do all this work. Moses, as their leader, in Exodus chapter 14, verses 14, says this. Maybe. I'm just going to read it off the screen. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. Who wants to be told that when things don't seem fair? Come on, Moses. you got to be kidding me. They're getting ready to slaughter us, and you're just saying, be quiet. That's not fair. But apparently the people did it. Because when we are silent before the Lord, it's in those moments that He invites us back into the action. It's in those moments where we are willing to humble ourselves and become quiet before the Lord that He calls us to something so much more and so much greater. Look what happens in the very next verse. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. Here we go. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And as the story goes, right, the sea is parted, the Israelites go through, and the Lord comes crashing in on the Egyptians. A fair God. Working on behalf of the people and inviting them into the action. When we are silent before the Lord, He invites us into the action. We get to see the Lord do more than we could ever have asked or imagined. But it starts with us mimicking what our Savior did for us and being silent before Him. This morning, as the band comes back up, we're worshiping that God. We're worshiping the God who was silent, not because it benefited him, but because it benefited us. That in a moment when he could have cried out, not fair, he didn't. And my plea to you is to be silent before him. Be silent before him. 
For some of you, that may mean recognizing and realizing that you've never actually accepted God's grace. You've heard about it. You know what it is. You understand it. You said, I don't want to be a sinner anymore, but you've never turned and accepted it. And in humility, you said, "Mm, Jesus, you're the only one who can fix my wrong. If that's you, I'd love to have a conversation with you to pray with you in our starting point room up in the front. And don't wait. What is there to lose? What is there to lose? For those of us who have turned and accepted that grace, each week when we take part in the Lord's Supper, it's a beautiful moment, an opportunity to be silent before the Lord, to come to the altar, right? We take a piece of the bread that reminds us of His body. We dip it in the juice that reminds us of the blood that was shed. And we remember that those things happened because He was silent. And so in these moments, as we take this, we can take a moment to be silent before Him. Lord, teach me, show me where I'm wrong. Help me to become the new person that You have created me to be. That's what we do as we take communion this morning. You may respond through giving. We'll pray for our offering after our time of response. You may respond through singing. You may realize for the first time that this is the joy that you have welling up in you, that you can come to the Lord and be silent before Him at any moment because of the grace of Jesus. Whatever it is, my prayer, my hope for you is that you would worship the one true God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for not crying out, it's not fair, when you totally could have. May we stand in the hope that we have, knowing that when we suffer, we suffer alongside of you, that we bear the reproach, that we have an opportunity to, to, to step into this intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Give us the courage to face those things with you. Spirit, I would pray that for those here today that have not turned, that have not accepted your grace, that you would burden their hearts, that you would speak truth to them, that you would invite them into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Savior of our world. We pray all this in his name. Amen.